All right, thank you guys for coming on to the Shadow Dragon podcast. Today I've got Matt DeVoe, and uh, to, and we are going to go over a bunch of different things, but Matt has been in the industry for a very long time. He's been on um, helping out with Black Hat, DevCon, iDefense, FusionX. I mean, you've got a, a slew of things that you've had success in. Um, let's just get to it. You know, what are, what are some things that you're working on? Um you know what are what are the things in the industry that you're seeing that are awesome and not awesome, and um, then let's let's jump into the topic of disinformation. What is it? What can we you know grasp about it? How what's the history on it, and um, what does it mean for you know information security professionals or just you know your mom and dad reading the news? You know, and um, we'll follow up with the inbox, the Q and A for the day, and. Um, just start kick stuff off here excellent thanks for having me on the podcast awesome yeah and so for those that don't know i've known matt a little bit for a few years now and we've kind of intersected a few different times and uh, matt's always just had a really good team around him always been pushing the envelope and um, kind of the guy behind the scenes for those that don't know excellent yeah uh, done a large, large variety of things. You know, I got my D, my start as a white hat hacker in the DoD and Intel community back when you got to have a lot of different firsts, right? So it was kind of the first time that type of team had been stood up. First time we were authorized to go after classified and unclassified systems. Uh, and then also I had the first time operating in a coalition environment. So we would stand up a red team during classified military exercises and it would expand the portfolio of companies that we could target from just U.S. systems to include the five eyes, so the Australia, New Zealand, Canada, UK, and the United States. Uh, given the time frame, you know, I'll get get to rack up a lot of different firsts with regards to being first person to get onto systems in an aircraft carrier while deployed at sea, a nuclear submarine, you know, kind of all that sort of excitement, uh, and then transitioned into a bit of an entrepreneurial role. One thing that was interesting, you know, by way of a cyber threat intelligence perspective, is because I was a, a guy who could be hands-on keyboard, but also had a master's degree in political science with a national security studies focus, I understood the kind of policy and national security implications of all this stuff. And as a result, I got pulled in to support the president's commission on critical infrastructure protection. If you're not familiar with that, it was a mid-1990s initiative, a, a presidential commission focused on looking at what are the risks to our critical infrastructure with an incredibly heavy focus on the cyber risk. Uh, so I got to you know, write a good portion of that report, wrote an infamous report actually to try and educate the White House uh, and the commissioners called the Hacker Primer, uh, which talked about you know hackers are not evil people because uh, I had this unique distinction of being a guy with a TSSCI security clearance, but still going to DEF CON and SummerCon and all of these events and mm -hmm. trying to bridge those two worlds. Uh, out of PSIP, there, there was a presidential decision directive 63 that was issued. And for those unfamiliar, that was actually the directive that established the ISAC system. So information sharing and analysis centers. And seeing the need for cyber threat intelligence and not wanting to wait for the government to do it, a group of us got together and stood up iDefense is really the first cyber threat intelligence company. That launched for me a career of entrepreneurship, you know, over the years that included not only working on that company, uh, but I helped, uh, you know, the, the startup called Security Design International, ran my own company, the Terrorism Research Center, that despite the name did a lot more than just terrorism related research. We had a global fusion center that provided 24 by seven uh, intelligence for private and public sector clients, had an active assessment program, uh, cyber and physical and then did a lot of interesting stuff for the US government. Um, did that for the 13 years, you know, through acquisition at the 10 year mark and three years post acquisition, uh, and then uh, helped start iSight Partner, not start, but helped build up iSight Partners. Uh, John Waters had reached out to me and wanted some help and went in there as the director of operations during kind of a key time in their growth. That transitioned to Fusion X, which I think was the first time we met in 2010. Mm -hmm. And Fusion X provided just very specialized red teaming, and we'll call it kind of threat investigations, threat attribution type support for commercial only customers. Uh, and uh, we sold that company in 2015 to Accenture. 
and I stayed on in Accenture for a little over two years running their global cyber defense practice. Yeah. See, I'm telling you, the guy behind the guy, right? <laughs> um, I, I remember, too, I mean, going back into the, the critical infrastructure stuff, that was pre, that was when NIMSI was still starting, right? It was um, actually, yeah, it was the kind of the catalyst for that to be formed as well, right? So the government kind of, you know, had the hallelujah moment around critical infrastructure protection and the nexus to cyber. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had uh, yeah, the National Infrastructure Protection Center getting stood up. You had, you know, law enforcement, military, intelligence community getting much more interested in this to topic. Uh, Defense Science Board a few years later did a, you know, a, a defense and base oriented focus on recognizing what infrastructures they were dependent on. So it turns out, you know, your bases are not self-sustaining entities mm -hmm. as it relates to power and telecommunications. And as we know, a majority of the communications, especially for things like logistics and workflow flow over unclassified internet pipes so it was definitely a, a, an interesting moment in time where the world finally caught up with a problem i had been writing about since 1992 in that this nexus of you know dependency on technology that technology being inherently vulnerable mm -hmm. was creating a unique national security issue yeah yeah i mean yeah and that's a long long <laughs> There's a lot to pull out of that. I mean, so just from the Nipsey stuff, then you had, you know, some of the InfraGuard stuff spawn out of that. Yep. Um, then you, now you've got, you know, the FBI running a lot of their, you know, you know, I guess their, their citizens academies coming out of that. I mean, so th there's a sure. lot of, you know, eggs getting hatched out of that over the last 20 years. And, and for, for some of you guys that, Absolutely. that yeah, I remember I had... oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, speaking of the FBI, I mean, another thing I did in the kind of mid 1990s is I presented the first ever cyber investigations course for the FBI. Uh, and they pulled people in from all of the different field offices. And that was a point where they had their cyber ninjas. And for them, the, the definition of cyber ninja was somebody who had a new laptop. It wasn't to do with anything with skills. And I remember stepping them through the value of open source and we did some live demos on uh, doing pager monitoring because back in the day, mm -hmm. law enforcement very dependent on pagers. And if you recall, it was very easy to, to snag those signals over the airwaves and, and decode them. Uh, so I showed how I could de-anonymize somebody just based on having their pager number. Um, and I, I still remember to this day, I spent the whole day you know, giving this instruction. And then a lawyer stood up and said, hey, by the way, you can't do any of the stuff that, that Matt just told you about. <laughs> Because the laws for how they deal with open sources and that type of stuff had not been kind of fully fleshed out yet. So I definitely had this moment of like, well, why am I here? I guess it's for informational purposes only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're like, now this is all classified. And you're like, what? Yeah, um, no, you just can't do this. It's great to know that this capability exists, but you're not allowed to do it. <laughs> right, right. Um, Matt, we've got Brian that just joined on, joined hey, on here. Hey, Matt, how's it going? And um. Good. Just, I, I'm sure you guys have intersected in that same realm because Brian was doing a lot of the, the uh, teaching over at the bureau um, for their cyber classes yeah. in the '90s. Probably you 98, guys. 98 through about uh, what, 2006, seven. Excellent. Yeah, no, it's probably possible we met at some point in that capacity. But, yeah, you're absolutely right about those early days, though. Boy, it's just it was it was rough. We we were actually teaching basic internet usage at the time because yeah you had to start them at, the, at that ground level you could not assume sure. that everybody actually knew anything about a computer or the internet and stuff like that yeah. top pro protocol yeah. stuff like that it was, it was crazy it and they respect was. to do investigations yeah yeah so um so matt you know kind of just you know looking over all the stuff that you've had your hands in one of the first things that i kind of have my question for you just um growing through that how have you remained fresh and maybe not gotten too jaded or what's the tension with becoming jaded with how the industry's grown and not grown because you know just full disclosure for me i i'm at the jaded point now you know uh, <laughs> after 20 years you know anybody knows me knows that like i just anything that becomes a cultural norm i just start becoming countercultural on it and 
you know, I, I'm kind of tired of the way DEF CON is so huge now. I liked it small. And, you know, how do you deal with some of those tensions with moving through some of your history and uh, where you're at now? What What's some recommendations that you can provide? Yeah, I've always tried to maintain a positive outlook. I mean, for me, especially as it relates to kind of the and security community, it really is. Yes, there might be 25,000 people at DEF CON, but there's still the several dozen that I know I'm going to sit around on the floor drinking Red Bull talking until three in the morning about really interesting stuff. Right, um, right. So that's kind of fun. Uh, and then, you know, getting involved in, in other initiatives. I'm on the review committee for our local B-sides, right, and participating in some of the more grassroots initiatives. We ShmooCon here in the D.C. area, although that's grown so large that I can't get a ticket. Uh, to attend anymore, you gotta go, gotta go run the lottery system. Um, but you know, I focus a lot of my effort on a, you know, where I reach points of frustration is people that kind of forget the past. And I allude to this on social media every once in a while. I get tired when somebody thinks that they've discovered a new threat initiative or discovered a new technology, and it's something that is twenty years old, right? So mm-hmm. I, I do a lot of preaching around understanding the history of the community, right? Yeah. You know, come in and pretend like you fierce domain or, you know, some of the stuff that talks about where we've come from over the past 25 years and some of the ideas that we've had. Cyber Manhattan Project, yep, been to six of them, right? I mean, it's not a new idea. Uh, information sharing and analysis, public-private sector cooperation, not new ideas. Don't prevent, don't, don't pretend like you're reinventing it. Uh, mm-hmm. So try and balance out that, you know, kind of, the folks that are out there articulating that you know they've invented the latest and greatest and bring that historical context to it and i get pulled in from a government perspective on those issues as well i've been, been dealing with state-sponsored threats for over 20 years history informs the future and we did a really good job over the years of predicting where this environment was going so I try and spend a lot of time working with them to try and figure out well where are we going in the next 5 10 20 years mm-hmm. uh, and for me that's where i get most excited uh, the other kind of you know big initiative for me is, uh, and I alluded to this at the B-Sides keynote I gave like a year and a half ago, is that it would be a shame if the hacker mindset only ever gets applied to computer security problems. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That ability to, to dissect issues, take them apart, make things better, speak truth to power. We should be bringing that mindset to lots of different aspects of society. Uh, so I've tried to be a little bit more active and advising political leaders and, you know, thinking through issues as I see new technologies. I mean, one thing I write and talk a lot about is uh, artificial intelligence, right? We mm-hmm. don't have real AI right now. You know, it's in the cybersecurity industry, you get a little frustrated because you get this head fake of AI, you know, everybody <laughs> says AI, but then they pass the ball to machine learning and you're like, well, that was kind of boring. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, my, but, I, I always ask people and I'm like, hey, uh, so how long have you liked linear algebra? And they're like, yeah. it's yeah. like, and I'm it, like, oh, uh, I see what we're talking about here, you know? That said, these data science initiatives and machine learning and this march towards, you know, almost a, a real type of AI, uh, or at least, you know, some narrow AI implementations are critical, right? We're going to be spending yeah. trillions of dollars. They're going to enable finance and telecommunication, all these different businesses. I look at it and say, why are we making the same mistake with the development of this technology that we made with, for example, just the development of the commercial internet in general, right? Yeah. We didn't think about security from the get-go. So I do a lot of evangelizing about saying, hey, let's build security frameworks in from the beginning. Let's articulate that security is important from the beginning so that we don't deploy these technologies and then all of a sudden have these issues associated with them. Uh, and I'll tell you what, where you have something where it's you know incremental machine learning, it is like having compounding interest in a bank. If you have a mistake early on in the algorithm, it just learns to be worse over time. And the only way to revert is to kind of go back to a state zero. So you have this, you know, this potential for investing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in your AI initiatives in your corporation, having the algorithms, you know, develop some some uh, bad aspects to them, and then having to regress back. Uh, and these are all problems that can be solved, right? Mm-hmm. You can take a red teaming approach and look at these issues and provide some frameworks, but I get frustrated when when I see the technologies being deployed and those frameworks not being incorporated. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I just heard about an example of that. Um, they were using machine learning for looking at chest x-rays, which I thought was a wonderful thing, right? I mean, yeah. Chest x-rays, they have zillions of those. Um, and the way they'd applied it, what they didn't realize that the uh, <laughs> the system was was actually uh, looking at a, a little note on the side of the uh, the chest X-ray, and it could tell the difference between chest X-rays generated at a say a, a small doctor's office location from those machines versus one done at a hospital, and the algorithm learned to recognize that, well, there's probably a higher probability of there being an actual disease on a frame generated from a hospital than there is at, mm -hmm. at a small office. So it was weighting those more heavily um, and, of course, creating tons of false positives because that was what it was looking at. They deployed this thing without understanding that. So it wasn't until they went backwards, ripped the thing apart, and went, wait a minute. You know, it's, it's just reading the code on the side of the X-ray. Yeah, yeah, no, it would be good to kind of frame those issues in advance, right? You know, or right. at least get somebody to red team it and say, well, well you know, it, hey, this is also data you're providing on the X-ray. Right. You're in the frame. Making that assumption that, that, you know, the computer doesn't look at that. Yeah, you know? yeah I read the, a similar type article uh, with the, and analyzing EKG results where they felt like the, the algorithms were able to predict when somebody was going to die, but they didn't understand why. Right. Well, that's kind right. of maybe an important thing. That we yeah. Understand. Yeah. Don't <laughs> let despair get in there too much. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you guys do this Turing integrity assessment and which like, I've never seen anybody advertise anything like that at all. Yeah. What's, what's that about? Yeah. So it really is just, uh, as I mentioned, trying to bring a framework for thinking through these AI deployments with the lessons learned from cybersecurity over the past 20 years. So it's a combination of, looking at it from the perspective of the robustness of your algorithms, right? Taking a red team or mindset of looking at how might these algorithms fail? You know, what data dependencies do they have that they might misinterpret, like with your example? Uh, so looking at it from that kind of red teaming slash data science perspective, uh, looking at the integrity of the training data, again, from your example, but we see over and over that bad data in or that these systems will inherit the biases of the data that they have. So looking at the robustness of the training data, uh, and then also uh, looking at the security of the infrastructure that it's built on, which is just classic red teaming, yeah, yeah. right? Let's not deploy these technologies on insecure systems. And then the last piece, which is a little bit more difficult and nuanced, is what does a, an adversarial approach to your machine learning look like? Uh, if you have built the, the tool that does sentiment analysis of Twitter to try and determine when your hedge fund is going to buy stocks. It's great at filtering out the guy who went and created 5,000 Twitter handles and all in the same day said, Apple sucks. Okay. You know, it's pretty easy algorithm to write. How would it do if a nation state did something, you know, around an influence campaign type of strategy where they spent years, they integrated those accounts into the ecosystem of social media and then started propagating certain messaging. How would you deal with that? Uh, how would you deal with the the visual analysis algorithm that gets fed bad data? And we see examples of this, it seems like on almost a weekly basis, mm -hmm. right? Where somebody trains an AI that's supposed to be identifying dogs to identify crocodiles as dogs or whatever it may be. Um, so looking at that, you know, again, my specialty over 25 years has been red teaming. So I tend to apply a red teaming lens to a lot of these issues. So it's saying, let's apply a, a red teaming and cybersecurity framework to how we deploy these technologies. That makes a lot of sense. Um, along that same line, was it, uh, we, we just had, well, so, so sorry to pivot off that, was we, we just had a friend uh, shopping, you know, new company around to VCs and stuff like this. And he, you know, he'd do his, his pitch deck and so forth. And he's, he, he did six in like two days. It was awful, I'm sure. Um, but at the end of it, he's like, they would always ask me the same question. Like, well, where, where's your ML in this product? And he's like, well, it doesn't rely on that. It's the wrong wrong sort of tool sure. for that sort of solution. As like, they were just like, nope, no ML, no money. We're out. Yep. And, and so I, I think it's the rhetoric is hurting the industry, but yeah. you know, let me get your opinion on that. It, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it absolutely is. I mean, I'm sure, you know, still go out to RSA and two years ago, you couldn't escape machine learning and AI at RSA and then the market starts to push back, right? Uh, 
what what I see is, you know, there's still opportunities out there for uh, smart money around some of these approaches. I mean, we I do a lot of angel investing. We're building a small seed fund. The whole idea being like, hey, we can identify, you know, real opportunities and do the real technical due diligence and and not come up with a stupid qualifier like that. Like, hey, you're not doing machine learning, you don't get our investment dollars, or you yeah. build an AI component into this, right? Um, the reality is that you know the applicability uh, is going to be determined based on the solution, and you got to be able to distill that out, you know, from the opportunity itself. Yeah, yeah. I I remember you know we we went and helped out some investors at RSA a few years ago, and and it was just that you know everybody was on the AI bandwagon, and you know you start asking any kind of small question, and and pretty soon you know you're differentiating you know this isn't ai this is a you know fast four-year transform or you know like yeah. don't try to pull the wool over my eyes and, and some of the people would just be like oh my gosh how do you even know that i'm like well a lot of this is just snake oil you know yeah. and that's that's hard you know um talking to some of the clients that we've had over the last few years like one of the the quotes that stood out to me the most was a guy said you know it's kind of strange like when I'm around you information security people, it just seems like it's one magician with tricks versus another magician with tricks. And, you know, he wasn't technical at all, but, mm -hmm. you know, the way that he articulated that was really interesting because, you know, you it's hard to see, like, what's true, what's real from the investment side or from the client mm -hmm. side sometimes when, you know, they may be overwhelmed with obscure knowledge or overwhelming facts that they just don't have the calories to you know, it's too many calories yeah. to consume. And, um, you know, it's just, and yeah, luckily in the cybersecurity industry, you know, the, the, the buyer community is getting a little bit more sophisticated, right? Yeah. If I look at some of the CISOs now, right. Friends of ours that we consider to be hackers and cybersecurity folks now starting to be into those roles, asking those tough questions and kind of pushing back in the market a little bit. But the higher up the chain you go, again, the, the, the more education is needed, right? You get at the board level, a yeah. lot of confusion. I've had boards of directors say, hey, I feel like I'm being held technologically hostage by our CISO because I don't understand a thing that they say. Uh, and my response is always, well, why don't you invite somebody on the board that understands cybersecurity? Is cybersecurity important to your business? You know, is it one of your top priorities? Why is there no one on the board that has that representation? Mm -hmm. Starbucks has a board of directors member who's a millennial because the millennial market is important to Starbucks and they want that perspective. You know, we haven't seen cyber kind of elevate to that level. Uh, so you, you get this educated CISO layer, but then you start to go above them and they start to encounter resistance and you start to have issues around, you know, I, I read that AI is in cybersecurity now. How come I don't have any of that? Right, right. And you're just like, whoa. When the reality is, yeah, you, you know, could not point to an, an AI solution in cybersecurity right now. Is there some 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 interesting machine learning data science types approaches yes absolutely is there some stuff you can do on pre-processing and data normalization yeah. yes absolutely but is anybody doing ai no yeah yeah exactly i mean i've i've even been framing it as you know there's some of the things most people would call call image recognition it's just i, I i'm just saying object recognition object you know? yeah it's it's there's some object extraction out of some images that you may be able to get some valuable information on and work on sure. from that, you know, is that AI? I mean, you know what I mean? Like the, it's so polluted now, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask you too, uh, Matt on kind of your, your thoughts on when you were starting eye defense, this was, this was pre the big wave of threat intelligence that we kind of all got caught up in a little bit in 2010, 2011, yeah. even till now. Um, I'm starting to see kind of the tide shifting in, in what people are really wanting to spend money on and what they want to you know define as value in that space. But what are some good contrasts between the eye defense time when you first started it the, the middle of the road time when this wave hit and kind of where we are right now to kind of give, you know, some of the board, board of directors some, you know, some insights, some CISOs, some insights, and maybe some of the newer guys on the block, you know, what's sure. in the future and contrast across all those different perspectives. Because there's not a lot of people that have been in all those places 
over the years. Yeah, and, um, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I still consider, unless somebody proves me wrong, that iDefense was really the first cyber threat intelligence company. I mean, nobody was doing it 20 years ago when the company was started. The, the market shifted pretty quickly once the ISAC started getting formed. But back then, it really was about a couple of different variables. One was just access to intelligence. Nobody was mm -hmm. collecting this intelligence uh, and providing it to these companies. And I remember sitting down with the uh, the chief security officer, chief information security officer, which title he held for Citibank, and saying, "Hey, you know, here's the report that we're putting together. It was not anything fancy. You know, it was the mm -hmm. 15 to 20 things you need to know." Um, if you subscribe, you're going to get access to this information on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And just getting access to the information was catalyst enough for people to start subscribing. Then we shifted into the threats got more complex. The, you know, the internet expanded into different geographies and different languages. And the threat intelligence started to, to focus more on being a collection type activity, mm -hmm. right? Now I needed translators. I needed unique collection capability. I needed unique technical capability. And now it was about aggregating from lots of different sources to kind of get that picture. Right, uh, and right. I think the third wave that we're kind of in right now is the contextual threat intelligence mm -hmm. page, right? The, the companies want to know the so what. What does this mean? And how can I take what you're providing me and actually engage in actions in my organization that benefit my cybersecurity posture? Right, right? right. So it's not enough to just throw a ton of data at them. Some are sophisticated enough that they can drive that decision-making process on their own. But for a bulk of the market, they want that context. What does this mean? How does it improve my risk? How do I manage? How do I mitigate? You know, how can we drive actual actions out of the threat intelligence that I'm receiving? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we've kind of fit in a very specific niche space in, in that regards with Shadow Dragon with we're just providing collection. You know, we're, we're yeah. not going to try to provide any observations than anything else driven by the customer, which is really kind of it's it's been a strange place over the years because there's that you know was well, it threat intelligence is it a feed is it malware this and malware that and it's like well we have some malware stuff but all of it is okay. in the philosophical vein of you need to make the observation so you know like hitting that mark in the marketplace is has been interesting because we get to see like who are some of those advanced teams you know in yeah. government and commercial and and how does that really look like and how are they growing and, and how are we yeah. growing with them? But yeah, I, I agree completely with you, with you on that just cause, um, even some, like some of our customers that are resellers are starting to do professional services on top of our tools. Mm -hmm. Well, we just want to do collection. We just, we need them to make those observations cause we yeah. have to be agnostic, you know, the, the collection piece never goes away. Right. I think, yeah. and you, I would put you guys in kind of in the unique category, right. On the collection side where you're surfacing stuff that is unique to the process. Uh, yeah. and I'm sure you get feedback, right? The first feedback loop that you get is does the, does the customer retain their subscription or not? Uh, right. <laughs> right, uh, right. Are, they, are, they, are you getting new customers, right? I mean, there's that kind of feedback loop that, you know, just based on the economics of the marketplace, but then I'm sure there are other times when they say, hey, this was really useful or this source is useful or can you do this, right? So you're kind of incorporating some of that feedback uh, into your processes as well. But yeah, at the end of the day, somebody needs to be making a decision based on the intelligence, whether that's a consultant right. or whether they have a sophisticated enough uh, intelligence cycle within their organization to do that on their own. Uh, but I really like it when you see organizations that have a, a security uh, entity that is intelligence driven, yeah. right? where they are making decisions based on real intelligence. If we think about just risk management in general, it's been a very sim simple formula for 50 years. You know, it's the, what are the threats to my organizations? So I need to understand the threats. What vulnerabilities do I have within my organizations? Mm -hmm. They need that awareness of kind of what their security posture looks like. What's the impact, right? We see a lot of organizations now trying to balance out, well, do I need to manage all of the risks to the entity or do I only need to manage the risks that would be catastrophic, catastrophic or consequential to me, right? So doing right. a little bit of triage and not trying to protect everything. Um, mm -hmm. And then you marry that together to, to try and have a risk management strategy that is kind of fit to who you are and what you do and how you're being targeted. Um, those I think are the most successful security organizations that we see out there. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I would say one, one of our clients that we've been working with for a long time, they had kind of given us a picture of instead of doing whack-a-mole, you know, you know, taking, doing takedowns on all these sites, they had, they had done the analysis that the, the takedowns don't actually do anything in the end. I think this is probably going to come out a little bit more in, in, in news and, and, in publication here in the next year, but they were saying like, look, you know, this takedown stuff, just it's BS. I mean, they have enough money to like analyze everything and buy everything and then come to a conclusion. And the, the flip side that they did was they took a strategic, a strategic approach against some of the top actors that are developing tools against their brand. And then they, you know, take a year and a half to take those five actors out, get them arrested hand that over to law enforcement, do all the process on that, disrupt that ecosystem, and that actually contributed to 20% of the fraud. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's it's a thinking problem more than a, you know, we got this threat stream or we've got this thing that got taken down or these stats that we can just give to the board that may contextually just be BS. Yeah. No, that's, that's important. You know, the, that's an important distinction is it's, you know, famous Jack Welsh quote that you get the behavior that you measure and reward, right? If you're, if you're measuring your success as how many takedowns did I issue last week, as opposed to, am I actually reducing the risk in you know, any sort of meaningful way, mm-hmm. uh, then that's the type of activity you're going to pursue. If you say, Hey, I want to disrupt this ecosystem and I want to disrupt the availability of tools and thus impact the trickle down aspect of it. Right. Cause we know how this works right in the ecosystem. You have the mm-hmm. really smart folks that, that build the tooling and then they sell that. And then you have the actors that operate on the exploitation side. If you can go upstream, you can, as, as the experience of your client, have a more measurable impact on the security of your organization than if you engage in that whack-a-mole, you know, how many, how many sites can I hit? Red teaming went through the same type of process, right? I mean, when I, when I, in the nineties, when I would brief a red team, it would be, Hey, you had 50 high level vulnerabilities and 75 medium and a hundred low. And if I went and talked to you the next month and it was, hey, you only have 45 high level vulnerabilities, you would view that as progress. And in one sense it is, but I can't show that in removing those five, you know, high level vulnerabilities that I removed the right five, the right, five that are right. likely to be exploited that are going after systems that would be meaningful or impactful to me. Right. So now it's a matter of, you know, when we did red teaming and you know this from the work we did together when I was at Fusion X, it's. We go brief the board and say, here are the threat actors that are likely to target you. Here are the goals that they're trying to achieve. Here is the attack surface mm-hmm. that presented itself. Here is the outcome that we were able to you know, achieve. We stole money from the bank or got access to your IP. And then here's the mitigation strategy. That is a lot more meaningful of an approach you know, from a security perspective than the old way of briefing number of vulnerabilities. Yeah. So yeah, metrics and measurement matter you know, in this field for certain. Yeah. I think and- it's very human, though, to, to, to want to go that way. Right. It's, it's, you know, you, you want some kind of reward. And I, and I think, you know, non-technical people that are dealing with this, you know, uh, from a board level or wherever it may be, they're, they're like, please just, just let there be something I can grab a hold of and go, yeah. that was a success, yeah. you know, and, and, yeah. and you know, and, and, and they, so they, they send to push their tool set and everything else around they do about anything that I can measure that looks like we're making improvement. Let's make that happen, even if it's not the right thing. Sure. Well, yeah, and no, I think, and you still want to manage the the total vulnerabilities in the environment and things of that sort. It's just making sure that, from a risk management perspective, you're measuring things that are important. When I would get asked by executives or boards of directors if there was a single thing that we could measure that is yes. most meaningful, I would oh, yeah. always tell them time to detection. Mm-hmm. How quickly, yeah. you know, but we're not going to keep somebody out of your network. How quickly do you detect that you have an internal problem and then how efficient is your response to that, right? Um, If you have a six month or six week time to detection, it's game over, right? If you can compress that time frame, you're imposing a cost on the attacker. They're Mm -hmm. either gonna get caught, they have to move quicker or more dangerous, maybe they're not able to target the systems they wanna go after. Uh, So I'd always try and drive them towards, well, knowing that every attacker is an insider at some point how quickly do you detect that you have an issue on your systems or within your network? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that one thing question, that's, that's classic. I get that all the time. Yeah, so yeah. what's the one thing you do? And I, I think it's oftentimes folks trying to buy their way 
out of security, right? Like, just, just tell me the name of one product, I'll buy that and it'll work. And then I'll yeah. never have to talk to these cybersecurity guys again. Yeah, there well, are no silver bullets, but there definitely are, you know, things that matter. And there's an example where threat intel comes into play, you know, and I'll, I'll use an example of, of one that, that Daniel and I worked together on years ago, uh, where a board of directors brought myself in and a couple other folks because they had this issue where almost every year on the year they were getting uh, hacked. It was like clockwork. Uh, and then one year, the most recent year, I think it was the fourth year of, you know, having a compromise it was costing them multiple millions of dollars. The attacker also stole systems around or information around four very proprietary systems. Uh, so it was highly elevated. I went in and was talking to them and said, okay, well, here's the network environment, the, the, the topology, et cetera. And uh, there was a the component of systems, there was like 50 or 75, there were Linux and Unix systems. And I said, well, what have you done to, you know, look at persistence of the attacker in those networks? I understand what you've done in the Windows environment. They said, oh, no, our incident, you know, response team told us this attacker does not target those types of systems, so we don't have to worry about them. And I, I basically said, bullshit, they don't target those types of systems. Yeah, you know, they've we, got the we, capability to reside there. <laughs> uh, I sent Daniel, you know, and his team down, and I think, you know, they found seven instances of compromised systems in the first two days. Yeah, um, yeah, they, they were they were on those systems. You know? Yeah, they were, yeah. But, you know, they would do their response strategy, and they would clean up the Windows environment. Then the attackers would slowly migrate back out of that Linux and Unix environment. I think you actually even found some uh, dormant VMs that were Windows VMs that were on those Linux boxes that when reanimated, reintroduced the attacker back into the network. Yeah. But they were making a decision that was costing them, I think it was you know, 1.5 to $2 million every year, plus the exposure of these critical systems, living with that risk because they had a bad piece of intel. And that bad piece of intel right. was, well, the attacker doesn't target these types of systems. Well, there was also another relational dynamic with, I think, the incident response company they were working with, which was, it was it was kind of arrogant and re really pricey, and some of their findings were, well, let's just re-IP number your you know ten thousand nodes or whatever. Which you you know dealing with the technical folks on the on the floor there, you know you could just see their eyes roll. You know, like what we're doing this again? We're gonna you know like yeah, um, well, yeah, just you know they they weren't really building bridges. You know so. Yeah. And they didn't have an endpoint for the Linux and Unix systems, right? So there was no value in them. There was no, no upsell to the customer. The, right. Whereas there was in the Windows environment where they kept signing them up for, well, run this engine, you know, press detection, like, you know, do all of this, this query year after the incident. And, um, you know, the, we went in there I, me identifying the kind of the threat intelligence issue, Daniel going in on the technical mitigation investigation side and the client for, for multiple years. And this had been an annual thing for them. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah. There's a I lot think of you those. see that in a lot of, a lot of different ways. I mean, we, we, we run across companies all the time that, you know, we, we don't have SIM coverage on all these machines because we can't afford it, but they, they report, well, we have a SIM. Yeah, but it, it's only catching forty percent of your systems, so mm -hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily useful. I spoke to a company just yesterday. It was uh, they were very happy about their two-factor solution. I was like, oh, you know, it's, it's great two-factor out all those systems. So, what about your Linux boxes? Uh, we don't do it there. Like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I've got some data on that. Let me, you know, let me share with you how to do that. And they're like, yeah, that's great. And I was like, well, what, what about your AWS environment? Because you guys have a huge. Oh no, we don't do it there. That's you know. Yeah. You get locked out of that. And I was like, well, I don't. <laughs> but but somewhere on a risk management spreadsheet. Yeah. Somewhere on a risk management spreadsheet, somebody checked the box for two-factor authentication. Right. Right? Compliance so, officer got to yeah. go, bloop, you know, two-factor. Yeah. Yes, we have one. I, I always yeah. like to say that our security aspirations, you know, that we demonstrate through checklists and compliance-based approaches never match our security implementation. Yeah. Right. You know, and and I, again, I think it's superhuman, not superhuman, but but human in general to, to take those approaches because people look at it externally. And they go, this is this is hard, you know, 
we have to to do all of this can't we just do (laughs) the part that's easy to implement you know like it's like uh, you could but that's it's going to come back around i'll Um, i'll I'll just put this out there i mean kind of one of the things that i'm kind of trying to focus on in shadow dragon and packet ninjas and anything where we're interfacing with people is let's try to push our message to be as concise and focused as possible because you know I want to have the awareness that they only have so much appetite for X amount of information that we can throw at them. So how can we really focus on that particular skill, which has nothing to do with the craft and it has everything to do with knowing how much can we feed to make it applicable and concise, you know, um, and that, yeah. and then maybe follow up with some, you know, where are you in this maturity model type thing and just kind of walk with them. Cause if you can walk with them for three or four years, then there's going to be more success versus, oh, we're just gonna, you know, have a one year or two year engagement. It's, these things are complex and your, your business is complex and your network is complex and it's organic as well, you know? So. Sure. Um, so, so let me throw that one out there. Cause I, I see this a lot, of course. I'm only dealing with breach situations, but um, there's a lot of people out there, you know, wearing, wearing that CISO CIO tag that are just woefully unqualified to be doing that. Um, I'm just I'm just throwing that grenade into the, the conversation. Well, Matt, I think you need to write a book on translating some of the technical things to policy. So there's like a framework for that that yeah. message right because yeah. that's a that's a super hard thing you know like yeah now I'm, I'm working on it you know i've tried over the years you know the black cat a couple years ago i did a session like you know in the career track area uh, called when hackers brief the board right like how do you translate the technical aspects of cybersecurity? and and part of that is also just understanding how to communicate with people right mm-hmm. you can be the best cybersecurity person in the world but if you don't understand how to communicate that up the chain, you're going to run into issues. Um, so yeah, that, that's constant. I mean, I am hopeful. You know, if I look at at folks that took CISO positions over the past year, uh, at least in my network, I see a trend towards more technical kind of traditional computer security, cybersecurity uh, folks taking those positions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the other aspect of it is that as with any kind of rapidly emerging market, the requirements for staffing got ahead of the capability of the market. So there were a lot of folks that got put into those positions uh, or kind of managed their career into a CISO position uh, that really didn't have the experience or the skills to do a good job of it, right? So yeah. we've also seen some getting fired and getting removed and you know, kind of some short-lived careers, but I'm hopeful over the long term. Uh, I encountered the same issue uh, when I was doing stuff with the military back in the nineties, right. Where you had moving up the leadership chain, they didn't understand technology. They didn't want to deal with technology. And now if you go and talk with, you know, any of the folks in leadership positions, they get it. I mean, they're, yeah, yeah. they are users of technology. They understand technology. They know what two factor authentication is. I mean, I have a, a infamous story, you know, from 20 years ago, trying to get the head of special operations command that changes one character password. Right. Uh, so uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, within the executive ranks of these major companies that we're going to go through that same evolution over time. Yeah. Yeah. I like the hopefulness here. Yeah. I, I, I prefer to always... be an optimist. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not even necessarily convinced all the time that that the most technical CISO or CIO is the win. I've seen some really good people that are, that are almost more just 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 high quality managers. Yeah. at that level that they're not incredibly technical but they have their here's the things we need to get done here's the quality people i put in to, to you know Absolutely. to, to yep. work those things for yep. me and they have incredibly successful programs yep if you're good yeah. at building and managing teams you can be successful right um, yeah. right but you got to be relying on the experts that you hire right if you can build a great team you don't have to be the most technical CISO. You can be the one that manages the process and then manages it up the chain, right? Some of the best CISOs are the ones that do, as Daniel alluded to, they can translate the technical into the business context. Yeah. And that brings tremendous value, 
right? They're the ones that get the budget. They're the ones that are actually trying to manage risk. They're the ones that educate the board. They're the ones that are pre-preparing the board and the executive team for an incident, doing the tabletops and, you know, just the stuff that gets them conditioned to the world that we live in. Now, before we kind of move on, um, Matt, I want to be conscious of your, uh, your schedule. If we can push farther, um, I'm, I'm okay talking a little bit more. If you're pressed for time, we can get to the... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm good to chat for a little bit longer. Okay, so Brian, the, the, the hand grenade topic um, past, past the chatter for today is actually disinformation. And, um, you know, like there's, there's a lot of talk about this. There's a lot of new, you know, experts on this. Um, there's not really that many new books on this craft from my perspective that, that I have in my um, library. Um, so let's just uh, kind of, I want to open the topic of, you know, what is disinformation? Um, you you guys are both in the D.C. area. You get to maybe hear a little bit more rhetoric than, than I do um, and maybe have more conversations in, in those realms. And uh, how does it impact information security and some of the things that people are talking about right now with election security and and all that you know what's what's real what's not real is is maybe even this whole topic and thread disinformation you know what i mean Uh, you know, from, from my perspective, disinformation is not new, right? But it's the means by which you can propagate disinformation is, is changing as technology changes. Um, but I think that, that less of it is really about disinformation with any sort of uh, strategic outcome other than the outcome of us becoming less trusting of the institutions in society. Yeah. Uh, so for me, disinformation is less about getting us to pursue a particular belief system or particular you know, uh, idea and more about getting us to argue with each other. Right. And then when the outcome is not the outcome that I personally prefer, that I feel like I have a legitimate backstop for discrediting that. Um, so that's one way that I think that, that it's transitioned over time is that it becomes really about targeting institutions of trust Voting in election security is a great vehicle for that, right? Because voting is a trusted institution of a democratic society. And the intent is not to go in and hack and change the outcome of votes by hacking into voting machines. The intent is for citizens to question whether that is possible and that that, that happened so that when the person that they prefer to, you know, to win the election doesn't, that they can question the entire legitimacy of it. Uh, or that they're, you know, we spend time arguing with each other uh, on some of these, you know, distraction type topics. Right. So for me, that's right. kind of the, the big disinformation issue that we're dealing with is this diminishing these attempts to diminish trust in institutions. Yeah. Uh, and if you if you push that out, you know, and I have a piece I did on OODA Loop a couple months ago um, that talked about, you know, uh, what some of these state sponsored actors would do in the future. You start to think, well, what are other trusted institutions, right? Financial institutions are trusted, you know, the other government type benefits entities, I mean, uh, entitlement type programs. There's all these different things that you could start to expand that that sphere of influence and disinformation into. Yeah, yeah, I I I kind of look at it too. For, I like I like your focused view on that, and that kind of like distills it down to something very actionable to anybody that wants to start looking into that um kind of the way that i've kind of looked at it too is like you've got all this social media stuff out there and really it's it's very polarizing you know it it almost doesn't just become an echo chamber it becomes a rage echo chamber you know yeah you're either binary yes or no and you know and and i hate that because like I just hate social media in general. I hate external <laughs> self-expression out on the media. Like it's things are complicated. It's easier to have a complicated discussion over a cup of coffee or in in front of each other than this this drive-by truthing of my way. And 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 I'm I'm also the worst of it. You know, I got off social media 10 12 years ago cuz I was like, you know, after 10 o'clock I'm just I don't want to know all this stuff. You know, like I don't want to go into rage mode if I disagree. And and yeah. um, I think that the the outset of everything is just 
in this rage mode on Twitter and Facebook and whatever the, the platform is, we just got to be okay with disagreeing, well, you know? And, I, and, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think part of the issue is, right, is nobody is going to run a disinformation campaign that is focused on bringing people together or finding middle ground, right? So what right. you wind up with is the, the focus is on the extremes and the extreme drives the radicalism on both sides of the equation or on, you know, the, the sides of an issue. So what you wind up with is that it ends up driving perspective to the extremes and kind of drowning out that middle ground mm -hmm. uh, because there's nothing that's that's reinforcing it. Uh, so, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a key point. And that's one area where and we've seen it with topics over the years where the the more extreme they can be, you know, with the topic, the the more the energy they get associated with some of these campaigns. Yeah, because that's what people latch on to. So, yeah. so we're, we're talking about it around the edges of politics here. Yeah. I saw an actual example of where just just bad information like that. And this is just recently. So um, it's probably three months ago, sat down with a CISO. Um, one of the things we were talking to him about was, you know, blah, blah, multi-factor authentication. I feel like I just repeat that same five topics all the mm -hmm. time to, to these folks. And, and he looked directly at me and was like, oh, well, you know, that stuff doesn't work. I was like, Ooh what he's like no no i read read some articles you know blah blah that it, it multi-factor two-factor it do, doesn't work and i was like i don't <laughs> I'm, I'm really not with you on this and what he was looking at was uh i don't know if you guys recall the um mid had done a, a little presentation on sort of an edge case example of where he could beat um some some two-factor system on some web-based apps and uh you know but the but the subsequent reporting of that done by non-technical reporting types was, oh, two-factor authentication is dead. Two-factor doesn't work. Blah blah. And and the CISO had actually read those without ever reading the original, you know, presentation sure. information. And it was that re 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 kind of dumbing down of the follow-on reporting to what he had read was just oh, two-factor's been breached. It doesn't work. You know, it's blah blah. It's all garbage. Right. You know, don't don't invest any money in this. By you know reporters who didn't know what they were looking at and then re-reporters of that information you know well you know, and, that's and a i mean that's that's an example of 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 pieces of information that just keep getting sliced and diced and if if the root of it isn't true the tr you know the the first statement or the second reframing or the third reframing you know it's it's gonna get diluted you know like um one of the books that was really helpful for me in looking at the history of this was in, uh, entitled Disinformation by uh, Pasipa. I think that's how you name his last name. Um, right. He had also wrote uh, Red Horizons in the 80s. Um, I don't know if you guys have read that book. Um, it's, it's amazing. Uh, one of the top KGB defectors that was in charge of some of these programs had come over to the U.S. and um, heavily influenced the, you know, Reagan, Reagan's uh, perspective on the Cold War and that kind of stuff. So um, one of the things that he really kind of illustrated was a manner in which you kind of start rewriting certain pieces of history to start changing that narrative towards that divide and conquer in the long yeah. run um, and, and being very skillful at that. And they even had numbers on, you know, how many people were employed in that craft uh in russia in during the cold war it was you know vastly more than any other program that they ever had um yeah. but it was the most successful um kind of wrapping up like where i see that in everyday life or reading news or anything like that like there's a saying that you know it's you know hold every thought captive you know and you've probably heard that before it's yeah. you know capture something analyze it you know and i i just try to ask questions like you know well who wrote the article what's the what's the title of the article or is there any source in the article is there you know what are the true artifacts and then what are the things in a timeline if i really want to geek out on this that may yeah. sway truth one way or the other because somebody has an agenda yeah you know it uh I mean, the, the problems that you're describing, I, mean, a, I in, invest a, a lot of my own personal finances in trying to help solve it with the oodaloop.com website. I mean, right? The whole reason that that site exists is because we wanted an environment where you could have 
practitioner based, you know, uh, pieces on these topics that was not done by journalists, right? With journalists, you have this drive of mm-hmm. a, they might not understand the topic. They're you, dealing with a huge portfolio of subjects. Second, they have to be sensationalist because their economic model is based on driving eyeballs and views to it. Or in our industry, the other problem that we have is that the practitioners that we're writing, were doing it on a kind of pay to play type basis, right? right so the right. information was biased because they're economically incentivized uh, to go and write a particular article. Um, so I think there is, you know, just a, a real requirement for an ecosystem and, and within our niche. That's why we did it with the OODA loop site for, okay, what is the subjective practitioner based kind of expert based view on this topic uh, that, that decision makers can turn to when they have a curiosity, but at the same time, also building a network, right? Like if the answer right. is not known to you, who is a trusted resource that you can connect to? Yeah. Uh, we also cover the open sources, right? You know, we, we do a in, a, in addition to the original analysis, we, we distill down, you know, what are the top five cybersecurity articles you should be focused on, uh, global risk articles, technology articles. Uh, but there is definitely value, I think, to trying to foster an ecosystem that is not journalist derived. I love yeah. journalists. They've got a role, but they can't expect them to have expertise in all areas, uh, nor can you expect them to ignore the, the economic realities of the industry that they're in and driving traffic uh, and is not pay to play. I mean, the pay to play mm-hmm. stuff is probably the most frustrating for me because that is often the originating source for some of this stuff that distills down into inaccurate things that are deemed by a fact at the CISO level. Right. And defining pay to play is, is sometimes hard when, it is. you know, there's not necessarily just C-SPAN anymore. There's a lot of conglomerates that are making money on ads and eyeballs on the screen and, you know, uh, contracts for yeah. cable news or whatnot. And so it really makes it hard to discern from, you know, mom and dad's perspective at home if they're yeah. not taking apart every single layer yeah. you know and it's hard it. for sophisticated folks in this space oftentimes to yeah. discern that pay-to-play element right you got to kind of dig and look at the economics and the sourcing and the kind of why does this piece exist you know and um, it requires yeah. effort right it's kind of that uh, you, you got to do so, some thinking for yourself yeah so many of your social media platforms are echo chambers of what your belief is anyway right you know it reflects back to you what you already want to show you you know so because the algorithms tell it to right (laughs) exactly i mean but but that makes it really (laughs) dangerous to your average person right Mm -hmm. that that doesn't realize what they're seeing and you know the world agrees with me well the algorithm just pointed you to the people that agree with you you know yeah. And Uh-oh. it's very dangerous for for kind of groupthink dynamics to have ecosystems like that that don't expose you to alternative points of view. Right. I mean, it's classic group dynamic studies that if you have 10 people in a room and one person is really radicalized and all that you're exposed to is that one person speaking, you're likely to get a majority of the room to follow up. If you get one dissenting voice in the room, one person that asks a tough question, then you start to split the room in half. Right. So I think part of the problem with the social media environment is we have created these echo chambers where all that we're seeing is this stuff that is kind of radically reinforcing uh, previous ideas. Right. So you don't get that critical question. You don't get that alternative perspective that might sway you. There are some people that they're just their their position is their position and they're not going to be dissuaded. But I think a bulk of the folks, you know, at least the people that I interact with, they're looking for sources of information that help inform that judgment. If all they're ever provided is one yeah. perspective, that becomes a very dangerous but, environment. But that's that's maybe part of the hard part of this whole situation is, you know, I can go find articles to support almost any crazy idea I have, right? Sure. <laughs> no matter how wrong it is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, I've got seven articles here that, that prove my point. You know? mm-hmm. um, yeah, not exactly, but it, and it, it just exacerbates the problem because they can do that, right? Yeah. You can always find some some publication somewhere. You can, yeah. The issue becomes, you know, now if you have people that, that aren't seeking out that information, what are the algorithms delivering to them, right? right. Is it that I have 60% of my friends are conservative, so I'm getting that angle? Is it, you know, I think that's part of the danger around some of the 
the uh, the dark science around getting attention and what shows up in your feed and what doesn't show up in your feed. My favorite iteration of social media environments is the pure timeline based. Like I just want to go and scroll yeah. through everything. I don't want an algorithm to distill it for me as to here's what you should see. Here's what we think you should see. And almost every social media environment has moved to that model. We're going to pre-process for you and give you stuff that we think has the highest probability for engagement. And oh, by the way, engagement is also tied to this advertising component. We're going to show you content that best suits the advertisements we're going to display in frame as well. Uh, And and that's just within our society, right? I mean, the problem gets a lot more exacerbated when you move into some of these cultures where they don't have a cultural conception of a Photoshopped image, right? We can look at an image and I can be like, oh, hey, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was never in an episode of The Office. That's pretty funny. Uh, but you have some of these cultures where the idea of Photoshop, the idea of imagery being false does not exist. And these platforms are being used to be hugely influential in those environments because anybody with the rudimentary technology skills can now change truth. And it's a cultural predisposition to just accept what's in the image. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a hard, it's, it's a hard it's, space right now. I mean, especially with there's there, I mean, kind of going back to the institutions that are getting attacked right now we've had the elections we've had freedom of speech you know the constitution you know yeah. um you've got freedom of press or the the reliability of press you know so um is this state sponsored or is this the unintended consequences of everybody being on social media all at one time and bad algorithms yeah. I, I don't, think it's I a don't, combination of the two. Yeah, it could and be I a combination the, of the two yeah. or three, you know, like um we just don't know. Um yeah. so I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna put a period on that. Because <laughs> we're still you going go down that rabbit yeah. hole for days. Yeah, I think but I think we could follow up on it in the future. You know, yeah. like Yeah, we, that'd be great. Um I've got a lot of things that I've been you know, we might wanna pick a topic and then we all come to that topic with What's our timeline? Sure. And see how, you know, maybe an example for people to say, hey, you know, these guys may not have all the same perspectives, but what's, what are the real artifacts that they pulled up and what's the outcome for that? And, yeah. n- you know, we're not all going to agree. No. Yeah. I would hope not. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, cool. The last uh, thing we've got our inbox, which is a part of our, our QA. Um, one of the, the common things that we get a lot is, um, why don't we have a big crap map? We call it the crap map internally at Shadow Dragon. Um, so we can do, uh, location and geofencing and, uh, more sentiment analysis, which, um, as you guys probably know, that doesn't really always work. You know, I haven't seen it work yet. Have you seen it work in iDefense or... Eyesight or anything else like truly work other than a good presenting tool? Yeah, I mean, the, the pew pew maps, you know, or yeah. management like to see them, you know, that's the, that's the reality. They're, they're, they're interesting. There is useful data, right? Is being able to associate at least, a, you know, a geographical presence with something, even knowing that that could be spoofed. Uh, gives you, you know, some insight, right? Mm-hmm. Let, 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 at least lets you see where stuff is routing through. The problem that you have, though, is is being able to distinguish that kind of informational view from an intelligence view, right? We know how difficult attribution yeah. is. We know how easy it is for the attacker to spoof the geolocation of where they're originating from, right? So, so I don't mind the map so much for the entertainment value or you know, giving you nice imagery. What I worry about is when somebody tries to derive you know, yeah. information from it. And they're like, oh, well, wait a minute. We're, you know, we're being attacked by people in London. Well, maybe, maybe not necessarily. Right? Like, yeah. Wouldn't yeah. make any judgments on that. Let's block, you know, all UK-based IP addresses. Um, so so that's good. And it gets a, a little bit more interesting on the attribution side around mobile devices, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm always amazed that people don't understand the extent to which your devices are tracking you. Um and it's not just the manufacturer, it's the, you know, the advertiser ID and most of the applications that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, geofencing maybe, you know, becomes interesting in that context because if I'm on Twitter with a mobile phone that says Daniel must die and it shows my geolocation is outside your house, 
you know, uh, from a protection perspective, maybe you want to have that information. So right, right. Uh, I don't think there's a, a simple answer. I think there's a combination of, of different values that you can go into with eyes wide open looking at a topic like that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've kind of taken the stance of like making a workflow that can can extract things if they're there, but also, you know, forcing people to think and yes. plot, you know? Yeah, yeah. So like if they do want to put something into a visual form and, and, and have that, you know, visual spatial analysis type platform, it's helpful yeah. for that. And some things can be checked as verified or not verified, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, the verification piece is the difficult part. But. Yeah. Yeah. And then on sentiment analysis, I mean, that's just like such a huge can of worms. Like everybody asks for that all the time. And that's kind of an observation. Which, yeah. Which, I mean, there, you know. there is a science to it, but I feel like as we talked about the problems with variables around machine learning and yeah. AI, that it is a science that is subject to high level manipulation. So, uh, very difficult to kind of discern true sentiment vice manipulated sentiment right would be my concern yeah that that's my concern too i mean like we looked at um some of the uh some of the phrases and idioms used for some of the folks that are kind of moving through the the firewall of china to get around that and stuff and that's mm -hmm. changing on sometimes an hourly to daily basis sure which you can't really even you can't put really a learning, you know, stem on that really to be actionable for anything that's worthwhile, you know, for a corpus yeah. of data. So, um, in the, that area or in language, language sets that you're just different regions are going to have a lot of different things that it's mm -hmm. not going to be. And language helpful. is evolving too, right? Right. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've learned that with my kids that the, the, the phraseology and meaning that I used when I was a teenager is different than the way they use it today. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, so you've got to have, you know, almost kind of adaptive dictionaries as well to make sure you're getting the true context or the ability to differentiate that I just use a particular term and my intent was different than the 17 year old that just used the same exact term. So. Yeah, I agree. Then you take into account multiple languages and cultures, it gets all out of hand. Absolutely. And an increasing yeah. dependency on machine language processing, right? Which means yeah. that you're getting the same interpretation based on algorithms uh, across that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So beware, yeah. buyers. <laughs> Here's yeah. to you, AI. Beware. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, guys, I, I've, we've got, we've gone a little bit over, but I think we're pretty much on time based on when we started. Right. And I think that if you know, you guys want to have another revisit on uh, disinformation and and what we all research at some later time i think some some of our folks out there all three viewers might like that you know absolutely no <laughs> uh, they count me in you know i'm always down for good conversations so 